Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. On this week's show, my guests are Gene Dong of Anglo-Chinese format producer Cesper Media, Barry Ryan, boss of UK Indies Free at Last and the Format Factory, and Sam Connick, writer, producer and director of the brand new live immersive documentary series, The Uncertainty Experts. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. So my first guest on this week's telecast, we've connected via Skype in the end. We've tried about four or five different ways to communicate. And finally, we have. So I'm delighted to welcome Gene Dong, chairman of Zespa Media in Beijing. How are you doing, Gene? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Hi, Justin. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us and uh, various technical issues. But I suppose that that sheds a bit of light on one of the things I wanted to talk about is, you know, communication within the TV industry between China and the rest of the world. But we'll we'll come on to that in a second. For those who don't know you, I mean, I've known Eugene for quite a few years. We've met at various international TV industry events back pre-pandemic days. Tell us about your business, Zespa Media, and its history and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Well, Zespa um, Media, a group of companies, were founded 10 years ago. And um, and now we are in two parts of the world. Um, we have a company in China and also in the UK. So we were set up to help um, prim- primarily to help international content creators and um, rise owners to do business in China. So that's us in a snapshot. Um, so in the past, we've worked with um, large media groups from Animal Shine, Banerjee, Zodiac, to Warner Brothers, etc. Also with uh, smaller independent companies from the UK, US and Europe. So in the UK now, we work with IP owners and we also, we represent them and we help them commercialize their content in, in China. So we also do co-development and co-productions. And in China, we have our own independent production company and we work with all the local uh, national broadcasters from the state broadcaster, satellite channels to um, uh, VOD platforms. 
I can only talk from a UK indie perspective, but I'm sure there's been lots of other efforts to try and build relationships and co-productions between indie producers in different territories around the world and China. But speaking about the UK, it seems to have got to a certain level of integration, but then it seems to peter out in, mm. in some aspects. But obviously, you've got a successful business, so you must be doing something right in order to make that work. What do you think the barriers are then? I mean, in terms of co-producing content, first of all, let's say content from outside China and adapting that for Chinese broadcasters or Chinese social media platforms? Yeah, well, um, I think in the last 10 days of uh, Zespa's history, we pretty much witnessed how China Chinese media market was opened um, very nicely to the international world and then closed very quickly <laughs> in that regard. Mm. So, um, well, first it was, I think in the heydays, it was more on the uh, format uh, kind of business, which was for China to license and adapt international format, mainly in the entertainment genre for Chinese um, uh, local um, Chinese local television. So, yeah. so, so all the best formats, all the good formats, were licensed in China, quickly produced uh, for one or two seasons. Um, but a lot of them fizzled out. And also, Chinese government uh, here, we really um, need to reinforce the. Um, the prominence and for formidable uh, Chinese government's role in the whole market, um, they can put in restrictions quite, uh, which quite quickly could shut down any business. So format business was quickly shut down uh, by the government when they applied restrictions to broadcasters in China, not allowing them to put on air international uh, format adaptations. Um, yeah. So, well, China at one point were buying formats like designer bags, but then uh, also they, they they exhausted the formats quite quickly. And uh, a lot of formats were done only for, like I said, one or two seasons and then just um, f uh, fizzled out. Um, and, of course, with the government's uh, intervention. And uh, so China starting to do their formats, their own formats quite quickly. Uh, of course, there were also copycat formats. They took inspirations, let's say, from mm. different formats and made their own. So it, entertainment, non-scriptive formats business um, had its heyday, and but quite quickly um, a few years ago became non-starter now. It was about five years ago. I mean, it seemed to be, as you say, it was a bit of a heyday. I mean, as I know there's a lot of big co-investments from Hollywood and and certainly a lot of the big international format producers and distribution companies were, uh, as you say, you know, people, there's a, it's a good analogy. You, you know, it's like designer bags. A lot of the, uh, you would saw the voice and, and all the biggest formats in the world seem to be getting produced all the time. But there's been a certain cooling now so so essentially it that that's down to restrictions isn't it that's down to what can be made and how many international formats can be made and and is is it also about ownership of domestic chinese companies in that ip as well 
Uh, well, yeah, I think the Chinese IP law uh, is always different to the international uh, IP law. So, um, so yeah, in China, there is always a dispute that the Chinese producer or broadcaster or investor who have put in money and effort to make the local version, and they want to own the local version, the full IP. So that's always a sticking point. Um, but I think, yeah, that's always in the nitty gritty of the negotiation. But I think the main trend, the, the, the reason for the trend to to peter it out was really um yeah from both the government and also from the industry so so the entertainment format has been and gone what we do feel there are opportunities as scripted formats and that's something we are focusing on yeah one strand of our businesses so tell us about your latest projects then at zesper and and what is working because obviously you're having to negotiate these different rule changes as well yeah, well, uh, this is related to scripted formats. The Our latest project, and I think now I can talk about it, is that uh, one of our clients, which is the Agatha Christie Limited in the UK, we have now uh, worked with them for a few years and China has taken on one of their um, stories and going to develop that into local Chinese TV series. So that's uh, the, the headline news at the moment. Right. So so we're working with one of the top uh, VOD platforms in China called iQiyi. So they are they are doing the adaptation. So actually, the the filming will be starting this weekend. Right. Okay. And obviously, there's a rich catalog there. If it works, then there's potentially uh, a number of returning series, that, which is obviously what you're hoping. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's what we want to uh, say to the UK or international content um, owner rights holders that uh, good stories always travel well and uh, and, and, and they ha- could have good successful adaptations in different cultures and countries, China included. Right. So, so essentially, we're saying that the main opportunity now for international businesses into China is is really in scripted formats. And if you've got a catalog or the rights to some fantastic, you know, classic content like Agatha Christie's back catalog, then there still are rich opportunities for you in China. Yeah, yeah, that we can say that. Um, again, though, I mean, not any good story can travel to China. Of course, we have our local culture, local restrictions. Uh, we need to observe a range of um, guidelines from the government again to, um, and that that that's what we do to curate and select from all the catalogs of from the international world to find the right stories for China. Yeah, of course. Now. Now, tell us about um, what's hot in China right now, because in many ways, China leads the world in certainly when it comes to social media and adaptations of social media and social media becoming a platform for entertainment. So tell us what's what's happening right now in China in terms of content and platforms. I just want to give you a snapshot of what how how productions work in China. Uh, us being an uh, independent production house in China, we have experience dealing with broadcasters and brands. And over here, I really want to reinforce that uh, knowing uh, good brands and sponsors are the key of making good programs in China. And this could be quite odd for the UK peers, um, but in China, this is the norm. It has become very normal for us as producers 
resources to raise sponsorships ourselves. Um, so we effectively, the, the broadcasters, TV or VOD, they, they wait for us to raise part of the sponsorship before we could pitch our program. And um, so that's so that makes us as producer work very closely with advertisers and sponsors. So that that's one reality we have to face. So creatively we have to create content that are sponsor friendly. And sometimes the sponsor would take a quite an integral part in how the program is created. So and designed almost. So we have to find the balance between um you know, uh, pleasing the sponsor and make it entertaining and creatively mm-hmm. worthwhile. So that's a reality that we all have to face. That's actually a very similar challenge that we've discussed on previous episodes of Telecast when we talked about ad-funded programming. And uh, But it's, it's interesting to realise that actually that is the norm. It's very much the norm. And actually you need to get a sponsor on on board first before you even start pitching that's fascinating and as a producer in china you also have to be part agency part producer Mm. exactly for any good sized production company we always have a commercial department who talk directly with brands and, and advertising companies right and and so when it comes to the social platforms in china they are now becoming you know, some of the main outlets for content now, aren't they? In terms of linear broadcast, is that starting to die away? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, this is something I really like to share also with our international uh, colleagues that in China, we have a lot of uh, quite innovative ways to um, for content to work with brands and, and also um, sometimes cut out TV altogether um, and and. Uh, I was talking to you earlier, Justin, about the Chinese live stream culture that um, big uh, online outlets like Alibaba have their own content platforms. So, so they invite uh, or the brands, uh, the, the product side, invite uh, celebrities to do live streams, and um, and mainly it's very much like teleshopping in the UK, if we draw an equation, and they talk tirelessly about the products or try it mm-hmm. eat it put it on their face and um and offer discounts so so celebrities uh, using their um uh, cloud and their following to sell the products right. directly um and that sometimes is entertaining content because they could be singing and you know they do entertaining stuff and people right away can place order and buy stuff and such celebrity talent can take a share of the sales of that night so so tv has been been made redundant in that case and uh, and this is a much preferred a way of um, advertising uh, to and sales because you put them to together because the the constant debate is that when you put adverts on TV what how much sales could that generate and in this case in China that has uh, it's been done in one go so so that's a very interesting phenomenon. And also, you know, like takeaway apps, etc., where people are eating, you, you could watch them, check out different restaurants, enjoying the food, and then you can make your booking. So they're really using content to generate commercial opportunities, and that's much preferred by the sponsors. 
I mean, I know Amazon are trying it in the US, and uh, uh, but it certainly doesn't seem as uh, as uh, integrated into the content mix as it does in China. So that, that's uh, that's definitely a pointer for us. What about your story of the week, Gene? What's <laughs> uh, what have you seen in the TV industry in the past seven days or so that you found relevant or interesting or inspiring or surprising? What mm. what uh, what's your story of the week? Uh, my story of the way. Well, I, uh, it's not a story of the week per se. It's a more of a observation or a story that happens every week that I have some thoughts on. Um, and this is very much related to the industry of the international media world. Um, that there are different companies being sold, being merged, being acquired, uh, companies broken down. And, you know, there are so many changes taking place. And that's news we read all the time. And it happens around us. And us being uh, buyers of content or licensees or collaborator, we found it quite difficult to navigate with all kinds of changing parts um, taking place. It's quite hard to identify whom we should talk to or he, the, the previous people in that company told us we have to talk to someone else now. And, and so some content we identified, want to talk about, nobody knows which department should talk to us. So in a way, we were saying doing business with China is difficult. But again, from China point of view, from our point of view, we found doing business with international media groups are difficult too. I mean, it's they're always changing. So that's my, well, it's not a story, it's more observation or reflection. Well, I think many people would share that frustration. And I I mean, to be honest, Gene, I mean, the fact that you've been able to navigate not only the changes in the media laws in China and, uh, you know, look at factual and then pivot into scripted, and then you're working with commercial brands on social platforms it's a uh, testament to how mm. how you've been able to you know keep ahead of the game uh, when the uh, the rules seem to be shifting all the time not only internally but externally and all these as you say all these buyouts and mergers mm, yeah exactly justin could i just quickly go back to co-production if that's something i you i could talk about in terms of what opportunities there are in china Please, I think that I think our audience would be really interested in seeing how they can work with you because China is just this huge, huge market. Seems a great opportunity, but there always seems to be barriers that are put up mm. uh, to us uh, to us uh, collaborating. But uh, yeah, please do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we we were earlier talking about scripted content and another uh, strand that we know could also work in China are factual programs. And that um, is very much in the space of co-development and co-production. So so we are always on the lookout to work with good production companies who come up with good ideas. And um and to co-produce with China. So so there are a few boxes we need to tick uh, in terms of the kind of program ideas. Um, and as we were saying, what's happening in China is that one of the biggest trends is China has becoming more and more inward looking. Um, we are encouraged to celebrate our own culture and enjoy our own things. You know, it's local content for local people sort of mm. mentality. So we need to, um, so when it comes to co-production, we do want to work with 
international partners, but the storytelling, uh, the subject matter need to be more China related. So, um, so it could be Chinese food and worldwide or Chinese language or Chinese personalities uh, or vice versa, you know, or in, international people in China or, you know, how international cuisine were ad adapted in China, you know, subject matters like that would be interesting. So it needs to be a fusion of China and the world. And only Got then, it. yeah, the Chinese broadcaster would be interested. And also it should appeal to international broadcaster as well, um, because, you know, it should have international elements in it too. So the holy grail would be to have um, a factual program that talk about things that are related to China and the world. And we could have it aired by broadcasters in both China and overseas. There must be lots of opportunities for that, mustn't there? Like, you know, there's the, the whole Chinese diaspora across the world and the communities that are there. They, there mm. must be stories even there that uh, that could be reflected back into China. And uh, but but also, as you say, are are internationally sellable. Absolutely. But, uh, so the message is that the door is still open. We just got to work a little bit harder, and uh, and 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 it's interesting what you say about you know China becoming more slightly more inward looking. I mean that's what we've found everywhere, isn't it? That's a trend around mm. the world. Make America great again, and Brexit and everything else. It, it's a trend that we're finding everywhere. So uh, so we need just need to work a little bit harder on those international uh, collaborations. Yes. So how about your hero of the week, and what or who? you're going to put in the bin. How about your hero? <laughs> yeah, well, Who's your hero of the week? Well, a hero of the week, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting news I read in Spain this week about this um, literature prize called uh, Pla Pla Planeta. And, um, and the best writer was this uh, lady writer in her 40s, apparently called Carmen Mola. And she has written a, a, a trilogy of crime novels that were hi highly celebrated. Um, but when she was called onto the stage, three men turned up, three men in their 40s and 50s, uh, three screenwriters. And then they came clean that they were the people behind this Carmen Mola and the, this lady doesn't exist. So I found that really interesting. And I, I mean, all the feminism stuff aside, I just think it's uh, such a clever play on almost like a double fiction because uh, the fiction writer herself is a fiction. So I yes. thought that was quite amusing. That's fascinating. Well, we'll put a link to that story in the episode description of the show so everybody can uh, can take a look at that. And how about who or what you're putting in the bin, Jean? Well, <laughs> I would love to put um, Harry and Meghan into the bin. I mean, I'm a Chinese and all, but I I'd really enjoy the the, uh, the British culture, and I just find it so um, disgusting. Sorry to use strong words, but mm. it's that the way that Harry and Meghan have uh, used and tarnished the UK's. Uh, royal family by their selfishness and greed and it was quite quite sad to see the queen walking with a walking stick this week and just feel uh, this couple has taken away so much grace from from this country so i yeah definitely want to bin them if i could right okay well that's harry and megan going in the bin there for the first time and uh, <laughs> it's, it's that's also you know it's a really interesting subject that a lot of people have got a lot of different opinions on and and it's interesting to see it reflected back to us from china and how uh, 
different international communities may uh, may view this but it's also very universal as well isn't it i suppose the grandma you know the the uh, the kids that uh, that are perhaps more disruptive and all of that we well, i think we, it's a family right we all can recognize a little bit of that yeah yeah i think yeah it's sad to see it happening to see a family breaking apart and also a quintessential uh, figure of the uk culture breaking apart so yeah, yeah. but I, I can tell you that in china we don't have many fans of um harry and Meghan. everyone interesting. is interesting putting their bet on when the divorce would take place mm. <laughs> okay right anyway Controversial, yeah. controversial. Well, no, we like we like a bit of controversy. Jean. Uh, that's that's Jean, It's been lovely to have you on. Thank you for bearing with us while we establish an audio connection with Beijing that we can record and and share it with all the telecast listeners. So thanks again. I'd love for you to come back on the show, Jean, and and have a wider conversation about China because it's not something we can round up in a twenty minute chat uh, so if you'd be happy to come back we'd love to have you back on the show sure absolutely thank right. you justin thank you jean we'll speak to you very soon yeah all right cheers so my next guest on this week's telecast is barry ryan from free at last tv and the format factory how are you doing barry i'm really well thank you welcome to the show the last time we saw each other was at a packed event pre-lockdown one in fact the world start was starting to lock down and it was the very last event down in surrey i guess about 18 months ago now how have things been for you since then so it was the week before lockdown and i remember it precisely because it was called content without borders and it was a residential thing and it was the moment where we all suddenly realised that we weren't going to be able to continue as we had been. So we were three days away from principal photography on our flagship show, Agatha Raisin, in season four of that. To give you, put that into perspective, we've only just completed that series now, which starts going out in December. So it was the week where the disaster was kind of laid out in front of us. Mm. And I, I remember there was lots of discussion about insurance at that point. That seemed to be the the overall key topic of conversation. Have you got insurance? Will it covered? Yeah. Uh, will it be covered? Well, none of us knew. So even though we have all that, we have we're insured up to above us above our body weight and height. We none of us knew if it covered this very thing because we all sign contracts and we have for 30 40 years that have force majeure in them and we all just kind of go mm, what's that act of god yeah okay we're going to be okay and then suddenly we have an act of god and then suddenly we have to realize and understand what we've actually signed so and there was all sorts of insurance stuff floating about that oh insurance companies won't honor it and then there was the other conversation which was that there was a cutoff date so if you'd signed your insurance before this date you were okay and if you'd signed it after you there was a likelihood that you weren't going to be and our government didn't have a clue so we were kind of in a limbo and a no man's land that none of us no one could have foresaw uh, but also that none of us really knew how to navigate best the next steps our jobs as producers when people say to me what do you do you're a producer i go everything that needs to be done to make the thing happen and then everything after it's happened to make sure that people see it and it, ha and it goes somewhere so 
with that as my lead, I didn't really have a clue what my next step was because none of us knew where it was going or we couldn't be in control of it. And we're control freaks by necessity. So we were all in a, where our job titles were completely meaningless. Yeah, feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of water under the bridge. And so you produce Agatha Raisin for AMC, and, and, and that is that for Acorn TV? Yeah, so it goes out on Acorn TV, and then we are uh, – that's our primary place. That's where you find us. And then it's distributed in other territories on other places too. So Acorn TV didn't exist when we started making the show, so it exists on Sky in the UK and – France Trois in France and then ZDF in Germany. So there's uh, relationships that are honoured, but uh, the primary place is equal. Right. Okay. And did you say that's the fourth season? Yeah. We're really, really lucky. Right. I get it. You know, what? not many shows last for four seasons. Um, you know, there's the we are threatening the world with a series five currently. So, um, yeah, we're very lucky. Well, congratulations on the success of that. So tell us about Free at Last then. Give us a bit of background about your company because I know, and we'll talk about the Format Factory, which is another business of yours in a second, but give us a bit of a background to Free at Last and as well as Agatha Raisin, what other projects have you got on the go? Okay, so the companies are entwined. They are sister companies. So basically Free at Last is 21 years old. We were 20 years old in the pandemic, which prevented us having a do, a bit of a do. Free at Last was the house I built to house my stuff. So I have got a checkered background. So I was in music. I was a university lecturer. I was a writer. I was a journalist, a television presenter. I did all sorts of things. And... It, when I went into telly as a producer, I stuck, you know, I was one of those pesky things that the BBC calls a trainee, except I was probably the um, oldest trainee in the history of the scheme. And they train you to do lots of things. So, you know, you're doing live and kicking over here, then you're doing Horizon over there, then you're doing 999, then you're doing Animal Hospital. So, and then at the end, they expect you to stop all that and just do one. And that's not me. So <clears throat> I left immediately when the scheme ended and went to ITV to make a music show. And then every six months for the following, I don't know, five years, I, every six months I was changing company or desk and moving and hacking about. And quite often I invented my own work. So I kind of thought that if I put it all under in one place, I won't have to move desk every six months and I won't have to pack everything up and, 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 and shift about so much. So for real last is the house I built to house me. Um, and so we started off doing the stuff that I was known for, which was pop culture, factual entertainment, music entertainment. So I was part of the team that launched Glastonbury on the BBC. I'd worked in music entertainment. Um, I'd done lots and lots of different things. Um, and so I just kind of, that's how Free at Last started. So we started off with a kind of unofficial output deal with a channel called UK Play. And we made a load of music stuff for six months. So we did daily music show called Get Your Hits Out with Lauren Laverne. We did... Uh, history of punk rock we did a biography series uh we did a documentary about eminem so that kind of stuff and then we shifted over across into pop culture stuff with channel five and did the spider-man story batman story things like that and then we did quite a big show called martina cole's lady killers for itv3 but it transferred to itv1 around about that time we'd also got a commission to do a sketch show with gina yashere who's a British black comedian 
kind of brilliant. She's currently on CBS with her own Chuck Lurie, Chuck Lurie co-produced show called um, Bob Hart's Have a Show, the number two show on CBS now. So she was a rising star then, and we did a pilot for her for Comedy Central. And that gave us the kind of bug of scripted. So we were developing Agatha Raisin kind of around that time, from that time onwards. Um, and then that was commissioned in 2014. <clears throat> and after that happened, we were getting kind of weird feedback from people about, oh, God, Barry, I don't really know what it is you do anymore. You know, you're scripted here, you're factual there, you're documentary here. So we decided to split them into two. So the Format Factory is everything that Free at Last did before it did scripted. And Free at Last is exclusively scripted comedy and drama. And so on the unscripted side today then, what are your current projects? And and how how do you work when it comes to working with distributors do you do you work with them on a case-by-case basis on 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 shows to sell them internationally or do you have any sort of investment how, how does that work we do we're very boutique so we're, and we're very bespoke so uh, format factory currently has um, a couple of commissions so we're making a feature-length documentary about jerry anderson uh, with jamie anderson of anderson entertainment who's jerry's son um and that is so that funding model for that is part of the money is coming from the theatrical, part of the money is coming from Gritbox, and part of the money is coming from the rest of the world via Abacus Media. And then we have a CBBC commission. So we made, we made a show in lockdown about called uh, My Mini Life about a 14 year old girl who isn't allowing her ambition to be a dancer be thwarted by the fact that she has an artificial leg. So we made that in lockdown and as a result of that we've got another commission from cbbc in that factual strand of my life where we're following a 14 year old uh, working class kid who has ambitions to be an f1 driver uh, so that's called my 100 miles per hour superpower and that's in production now and then we're also making it behind the scenes of that the racing because we wouldn't let anyone else make it because why would we um so called agatha land and so each of those is funded you know, in very individual ways. And in terms of our dramas, every single one of our dramas in development has a completely unique and bespoke business plan. We have worked with distributors. We had a, I wouldn't call it a first look, I don't know what we would call it, but we had a two-year relationship with Sky Studios, but we signed that before their reorganisation, so it was all skewed by the Comcast acquisition. And then we have relationships with individual dramas with other distribution partners. The only condition that we have for how we work with people is that they have to be relevant to the project. So we have a Canadian stroke Welsh drama in development, and that business plan is populated by people who are relevant to those territories. So there's obviously a lot going on on both businesses, both on the scripted side and unscripted. And here we are coming into winter 21. We're starting to see, and I, 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 you know, I don't want to jinx anything, but I'm starting to see rising COVID figures as talk of new variants uh, and all the rest of it. Let's look on the positive side, first of all. In terms of that last COVID pandemic period, you said that you've, you know, on the scripted side, it took you, you know, almost 18 months to get Agatha Raisin Series 4 out of the door and onto Acorn. And you did one or two 
unscripted shows as well. I mean, uh, have you found that that period was difficult for you? Or actually, have you found that it's opened up more opportunities? Because we're seeing more and more of that with people that, you know, they've gone into super development, and now they're getting everything commissioned. How is it for you as a, as a small indie? Okay, so we've run a company for 21 years. And every single time there's been something in the world that's had repercussions and the ripples. We've been at the wrong end of that generally. So um, for the first time, we were in a position where we were doing all right beforehand. It was a pain in the arse completely. It changed everything and how we did everything. But in terms of us, we were okay and we could survive it. We could look ahead and go, yeah, you know, this isn't great, but it's not going to close us down and it's not disastrous. Whereas before, we've always been under the threat of that. So, And we're an indie that doesn't have backers and we don't have investors, it's just us. We are what would be called vulnerable. But we knew that at some point, Series 4 would happen. Well, you know, it was contractually in place. It was written we were three days away from the first day of principle photography. So we knew that there were conversations that were going to happen further down the line. So for us, what we had to do was look around us and go, what can we do? Now, for Format Factory, the response was completely different because, you know, there's the whole element of topical, there's things you can do. But one of the things that I was kind of adamant about is that I didn't really want to start making lockdown shows. I look at TV now and there's dramas that I can see that have been shot in lockdown and it frustrates the life out of me that, you know, it's this period that we will always go, well, that must have been... 2020 because look at the dis- look at the distance between all the actors <clears throat> i just didn't want to make shows that were cre- creating a covid legacy do you think the audience can tell that do you think or is that a producer's eye i'm not sure i think that's probably a producer's eye and it's just i just find it a bit depressing you know and that's my mm. taste but i also think there's things that people could have done to mitigate that you know like the you know the whole shooting through screens thing and the whole you know with the you can position a camera where you can minimise that and there's some shows that haven't anyway. But for me, it's just not what I wanted to do. When the people started to pour out lockdown things that looked like lockdown, I wanted not. I wanted to look at anything else other than that. So we decided not to do that. You know, Former Factory had a couple, had a, a dating format that it played with for a while, which we've extended out now to be a distance dating format, but we didn't want to look at that stuff. So we wanted to look ahead at what we wanted to do. To, to be making when we came out of this. And then because we had rights and options on things, it seemed to us that the best thing that we could do was do what you said before, which is to hyper-drive our development slate, which we did. And that is actually, as you've also said, uh, showing dividends for us now. You know, we've got into a play. You know, actually, I've got some book series where there's 40 books. And, of course, before COVID, there was no chance I was ever going to have time to read those, whereas actually lockdown gave me the time to kind of really embrace some of the projects that I've got and show them some love um, in a long-term overview way and to kind of organise them. So instead of reading just four books at a time, I'm, you know, I've actually managed to get ahead and actually have a massive overview in terms of where that series is going to go. So, that, you know, so we kind of hyperdrived it in that, in that way. And also there were some originals and some writers that had approached us with things that we thought, um, actually, this is the time where we can show those people some attention and we can mentor in a meaningful way now because we've got the time to be able to do that. So we've done that as well. I'm going to ask you this, which probably you're probably going to hate this, but if we do have another lockdown, 
yeah. you know, if we do. I mean, is that something that you've planned for, half expected, or is it, a, you know, and, and if so, obviously it depends on what government guidelines are going to be, but um, do you think that it will have a massive impact on what you do, or do you think that it's something that now we know what we know and as you say, you know, a lot of people have got experience of filming through lockdown. Do you think it's something that that might not affect you quite in the same way as uh, as it did last year? I think it depends on the fear. I think fear, the last... I don't think we've had the fear that we had the last time. And fear is a great paralyzer. And fear makes people not do things rather than what we normally do, which is to do things. And we now, this time, maybe we'll do things in a different way. Um, I'm not holding my breath for government guidelines because the government guidelines haven't been helpful at any point along the way. So um, I think we have to take the leaders, the people who know what it is we do and we need to do every day. We now know what our processes need to be and how to protect our people and also what we need to do to make sure COVID, even if it's in the world, doesn't invade in the way that would be disastrous for what we're doing. So we started this conversation, Barry, when... You know, reminiscing back to uh, content without borders. Well, in April twenty nineteen. Yes, those vintage days. <laughs> so, uh, so what about events for you then? Uh, uh, have you been to any industry events? Uh, we we were at MIPCOM last week and NEM a few weeks before that. Uh, have you got plans to to attend any markets or events in the next few weeks? So when lockdown stopped, when it finished, on the Monday I went for a curry, on the Tuesday I saw stand-up, on the Wednesday I saw a gig, on the Thursday I can't remember what I did, and on the Friday I went to the theatre. So I was on the starting block from January the 1st to go. The minute I could be out, I was out. I can't live in fear. It's not something that I do or want to do. And so um, I have been at things since we were allowed to go. I've been to three literary festivals I've been to, we were, didn't go to MIT because uh, husband and partner in free at last, David, was 60 in lockdown and I bought him a gig in New York, which was rescheduled and it was going to be on the week of MIT. And then when it was cancelled only a week before, um, we couldn't be bothered thinking about MIP and it just didn't, because it, it wasn't something that was, that we, you have to plan for those yeah. markets and we hadn't. So we thought there's no point going because we're not ready. Yeah. Um, and also all the kind of conversations that I need to have with the people who were there are already happening. So this felt like a MIP we could skip. Right. Um, so we did. And I like to be prepared for those things. I don't like to go just on an ad hoc basis. Um, yeah. And we weren't yeah. ready, so we didn't go. But, yeah, I've been out and about at events, and I'm not scared of them. One of the things, I do get really bad winter blues, so I booked a lot of things in January just because I wanted stuff in the diary to look ahead to. So one of the things that we are doing is on the 15th, December we're sailing to New York and everyone's going are you mad getting on a boat with thousands of people and I'm like well I might be but I'm it's not going to stop me doing it I need to know that I'm doing and so I just do I'm not scared will you be a real screen for the format factory will you be going over there yes we will yeah we will um and you know I think it's really important I like being in the room so the zoom thing and all of that is fine you know and if that's what people want to do fine I'll do it with them but uh, you know being in the room with people and having those conversations and doing things as a collective is as important as it was before. Maybe it will rationalise how we do that. And maybe it will, um, maybe there's the strength in both. You know what I mean? I mean, some of the Zoom things, um, 
by making some of the some of my processes quicker rather than the you know the, the physical meetings but you know the i don't want to surrender either of them if i'm honest i think that it's taught us that there are expeditious ways that we could be doing things and then there are some things where we all need to be in the same room having that collective conversation that you can't really do on a zoom and now it's time in the show for barry's story of the week the tv industry story from the past seven days that he's found relevant interesting surprising upsetting inspiring anything barry what's your story of the week so my story is the whole fury about the dave Chappelle special on netflix Hmm. um so i wasn't shocked about the Chappelle story, but I'm surprised by some of the other things that have been borne out by the furore around it. The actual show itself is quite lame. It's called a special, but there's not a load of special in it. It's actually, at some points, I found it quite cringy. Mm. Is it Chappelle's best work? No, definitely not. So, but once you see the show itself, for me, it wasn't worthy of the fuss. What is the fuss? Could you just explain that for us, Barry? What what the what the fuss is all about? Well, it's um, so the fuss has been about his uh, ranting, and I, you know, there's no other word to say. There's a lot of ranting in the show about trans and trans issues and LGBTQ questions. Um, but his take on it is, for me, it's just another dull straight man's obsession with what's going on down below. So it's about the trans genitalia. And it made me ask questions away from that. It made me what's up, ask what's up with Chappelle, that this is what he wants to talk about. Um, it seemed to me that it's spotlighting a man stuck in his own kind of personal time warp, obsessing about things that aren't really anything to do with him. But I'm also, the other thing that's surprising about it is the lack of responsibility surrounding its impact. I mean, I think it's really turned out for the producers and the company not to understand that there would be a reaction to it at its time. There almost needs to be a conversation about, you know, a kind of we need to talk about Dave moment, you know, and somebody should have gone, okay, but we actually need to talk about what, you know, whether Dave's moment has passed. Uh, So there's been a whole conversation about this for the last decade and maybe two decades about the comedy of negativity and punching down. Has that had its time? So when you put this kind of a show on a pedestal, yeah, then you have to expect people to come for it and to react. So, And if your defence is that it's his free speech as a comedian to say the bad stuff, then it's equally others' free speech to react and say, no, Tar. <clears throat> so don't do the surprise face when they come back in force. You know, it's not a surprise what's in the show, so it can't be shocking what the reaction is. Yeah, and particularly in Hollywood, these, you know, these issues are being you know, flagged more than ever. And we've now seen there's certain threats of Netflix staff actually walking out. And I think Ted Sarandos, I saw a piece today that, you know, he's he's come out, he's, he's apologised in terms of the way that he's been dealing with this internally. Do we think that this may have an effect on the sort of content that Netflix might commission in the future? Well, there's all the bits of it that are shocking to me, right? The numbers. How can this be 20 million dollars worth of stuff how can it yeah i saw i saw that it's a one-off special is it and so that and that's, but it's part of a bigger deal and i think it's three shows and it's 60 million but so that works out about 20 million ago right but the thing they're saying almost is that it that, that the comedy of hatred pays that's you know that's one of the side messages right 
So, mm. and it's also that maybe they need the controversy to justify this kind of spend, right? So there's the fuss is swelling the viewership, the viewership. So people are going to go to it to see what the fuss is, you know. But there are better and quieter voices on Netflix. I mentioned Gina Yashere before, Hannah Gadsby, Michelle Wolf, but this is the grandstand show. I don't, I don't get that, and I don't understand. So I don't understand their numbers, and I don't understand their metrics. I'm also shocked at who's watching it. You know, I can't understand why anyone gay, by trans or otherwise would expect there to be anything in a Dave Chappelle show for them. This is like saying to me, oh, Jim Davidson's on tonight. Do you want to go? It's like, well, mm. no. I, you know, I, we know what's in that team. It said the same thing for 30 years, so why would you go there? In terms mm. of the people, you know, I think there's um, a thing about the the internal workforce reactions of people who have to be in that building and where this is coming from. You know, it all, it, it makes me ask why there hasn't been an internal conversation about the ethics of content and the responsibilities that they have to their staff and to their audiences. You can't bang on about diversity and inclusion and then put it on a pause while you get the Chappelle show out as a priority. And you can't bang on about transparency and sack the most transparent person in the building, you know, because you've already betrayed your understanding of the trans word. So it seems to me that none of the messages are saying what needs to be said. But also the thing you said about, you know, should this change what Netflix are doing? And I hope it doesn't, right? Because I think as audiences, we have choices and we should be stronger than the urge to cancel. You know, we've lived through, you yeah. know, I've lived through five decades of, being, of there being a load of TV, a load of shows and a load of people that don't talk to me, that don't want to talk to me and that have taken aim at me, my life, my culture and my lifestyle. I'm used to this stuff being widely available and also celebrated, but I'm stronger for it. I'm a big advocate of turn it off. You can't talk to me if I'm not listening. There is an off button. If it isn't for you, it's not about your taste. It's not about being made for you. You're not configured in the plan. It's not for you. Accept that and move on. Scroll. Mm. Move, uh, scroll, turn over, turn it off, read a book. Um, and then I'm horrified, basically, that the Netflix whistleblower was sacked because I think, as, you know, we all have responsibility, whether we work for the tiniest indie or the biggest corporation. If we see something that we think is wrong, open your go. And I think that that should be encouraged, and I don't think it should be sound. I get it that you're running businesses, but then manage your businesses, manage your people, talk to them, communicate, use them because they're powerful. And now it's time for Barry's Hero of the Week and who or what he wants to tell to get in the bin. Who's your Hero of the Week, Barry? Uh, my hero is this week, next week, and every week until the end of my time is Jeremy Corbyn. Right controversial i can't see why um and i don't want to justify it he just is and will be forever all right good for you and who or what are you telling to get in the bin so i want to be the woman exec who i worked alongside in 1997 <clears throat> who was a bully then and 30 odd years later is still a bully and it was just spent three weeks bullying someone uh, her reputation is known but she's still hired uh high profile prolific company who I'm sure pride themselves on their inclusivity and people protections, but despite knowledge, have allowed this to happen. She quaffs the right champagne in the right places, I'm sure. But people shouldn't in 2021 be forced out of workplaces because someone is so self-consumed and arrogant that they don't know how to be civil, professional or human. So she and all bullies go in my bin. Absolutely. I think in all our bins, and I think we're, we've. Uh, it's it's just a shame that we still keep hearing about bullying, isn't it? And uh, and often you actually think it's uh, it's men who you assume 
are are the bullies, and obviously, obviously there are a lot, and historically there's probably been more of them than women. But you know, it's it's important to to point that out as well. And as you say, if this is somebody that is well known in the industry, then doesn't word get around? You hope so. I don't know if word gets to the right people, though. I think that people at certain level, the conversation I've had about this particular thing is that the conversation has got to a certain level within this company, and it's just it's just it's it's either not gone up or it's been ignored. And I think it's I think it's a shame that you know, given if we all put our bullies in the bin, all our all our bins would be full. You know, or do mm. we have enough bins? Do you know what I mean? There's a national bin Quite right. crisis in television. But, you know, I think <laughs> I just, it made me really sad because it was something that I spoke out about in 1997 and probably did me some harm back then. But I still won't be silenced. And I think, and this is the thing I'm saying about the whistleblower thing. We need them. We rely on them. And actually, the, there was a Facebook whistleblower a few weeks ago that I think has made a you know a, a real difference. And you know, as BBC whistleblowers as well, you know, as you say, they're very very important to the uh, democratic process of the way that we live in the media. How do we move on if we if we don't know? Do you know what I mean? They're, they're such a vital supply of, of inside information. Yeah. Absolutely. Barry, it's been great to speak to you. And I'm really glad yeah. that, that we've uh, hooked up and had another chat again. And enjoy your cruise. And I will, <laughs> I will see you in Austin, Texas at the end of January. You will indeed. Thank you for having me. Now, I was doom scrolling through social media last night and I came across a really interesting documentary project. And in fact, I don't really know if that's the right way to describe it. But what I thought was really interesting about it is that it brings together a lot of what we've covered on telecast in the 18 months or so, so far, which is obviously talking about the TV industry, documentary, documentary production, but also burnout and and maybe a little bit of psychology as well. So to tell us more about this new project, I'm delighted to welcome Sam Conniff to the show. Welcome to telecast, Sam. Hello, Justin. Thank you very much indeed for having me on. And your doom scrolling is my good fortune. As that was just literally last night, you're the quickest guest turnaround as well. So I'm delighted that social media does have a uh, a very uh, positive effect on our conversation now. So before we get on to talking about your project, Sam, can you just give us a little bit about your background? Tell us what, what you do, where you come from. Most immediately, I've come from a period of profound uncertainty because the, the new career I'd forged myself a few years ago really fell apart in the early part of the pandemic. Before then, I'd surprised myself. I had written a book. Uh, the book had done really well and, and it's got, become bestseller around the world. So a new career of, of public speaking, turning it into workshop facilitating. It's kind of around leadership and well, fundamentally, it's about stories of the golden age of pirates that nobody actually knew were true, which also spawned a Netflix doc of its own called Lost Kingdom. And that was uh, my escape vehicle from a social enterprise I ran called Liberty for many, many years, uh, a project giving young people a platform that began in Brixton, spread across the UK, and then across the African continent in Nigeria and Kenya and, and South Africa. And in the midst of all of that, a number of things that would probably be relevant to some of your listeners, I was the 
producer of an interactive series called Dub Plate Drama um, some years ago, three series that ran across oh, MySpace is where it began. MySpace, MTV, right. Channel 4, Late Nights, 3 Mobile. It was a really kind of early prototype of, of what's possible in scripted uh, with, with a bunch of interactivity. And then more latterly worked with uh, all the big broadcasters and, and Shine on a, on a really big pan-industry diversity program, bringing young, young diverse talent into the industry, many of whom are now you know, real, real stars across the industry. Okay, well, that all sounds fantastic. Although it was a little while ago, it's obviously very relevant and very topical now to some of the issues that that we're facing in wider society and TV industry and, and how we address those. But coming on to your project, your press release promises a brain-expanding, mind-altering, perception-shifting experience. Tell us about it. Good quote to start with. Thanks very much. And that is actually a quote directly from Netflix, who came along to the pilot that we ran in May. And at that point, uh, we didn't know that that was a fact. But we do now know that's a fact because I ran the pilot in conjunction with the team at University College London from their brain sciences laboratory from a very specialist niche department called Decision Making and Uncertainty. And they ran a series of rigorous uh, tests, three separate scientific assessments against a control group of our audience of the pilot. Actually, that glorious quote from Netflix is true. The show was mind expanding and mind altering and brain expanding. And we could measure that we increased people's tolerance to uncertainty, their attitude and response to uncertainty, improved their abilities at decision making, open mindedness, empathy, preference for predictability and even discomfort with ambiguity all as a result of watching a three-part interactive and immersive online and live documentary which is a bunch of words right what it was in truth was a total experiment it was an idea that i'd had in lockdown that kind of begun similar to your journey i think justin Mm. and by the process of iteration Sometimes it was a workshop, sometimes it was an online course, sometimes it was a book proposal. And then I'd been running it once as, a, as an online session in the afternoon on Zoom as we were all beginning to really reframe our understanding of what kind of the digital and watched and, and an interactive experience was, I think. And um, I got my feedback sheets at the end of the session and someone said, best documentary I've ever seen. And I was like, hey up. And in a moment when we were, you know, another motherfucking zoom call wasn't what anyone needed or wanted i began to really get excited about my opportunity to play with genres play with technologies play with people's expectations and then you know as i think it was all great documentary and and actually you know good tv does leave a mark on your audience leave a positive mark and an impression and that's what's always interested me about the genres and i suddenly spotted there's a chart, there's a there's a gap here to do something different in the in the emerging world that we're in. We know that docs were went off the chart, as did podcasts, as did nonfiction reading material during um, lockdown. But it seemed to me that the biggest opportunity in in video, in TV, you know, let's 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 call it a very broad and evolving area, was in the format that we were hating the most. There was everyone, you know, thinking, please God, not another Teams call, not another Zoom call. But to me, it seemed like that was the space for interaction. That was the space for innovation. You know, we were escaping these screens to go and relax and, and, and binge watch on the new series of, um, God, I can't wait to watch Succession later, um, of yeah. whatever it was going to be. But the screen yeah. in front of us, that little frame, that horrible Zoom call we were seeing, that was the space that was so ripe for ripping up. And it was a kind of a failure of our own imagination to blame the limitations on this tiny little screen of communication. The chance was really to do something interesting in that space. So the project's called The Uncertainty Experts. 
Tell us about why you came up with that title and, and how does that relate to this interactive three-part live documentary project? So it's March 2020, the week where all of my bookings for the year, all of the events, all the conferences, everything I was relying on had disappeared. I was divorced the year before, so I've got two little girls um, who live with me most of the week and um, two houses to pay for, and, you know, coming out of a professional high point, right? Creative high point, financial high point. And all of a sudden, I felt fucked and I felt like I was in free fall. And I I had quite a lot of clients at the time and they were also feeling very vulnerable for many people that, that experienced nothing like it. And as work disappeared, I had time on my hands and I, and I started volunteering. I've done lots of work through Liberty with Young Entrepreneurs. And so I started volunteering my time to give business advice to them, lots of creative young media professionals. And, and they showed up to the calls I had with them really pretty bouncy, you know, very resilient and, and ready to innovate. Whereas my clients who are my peers or, or my seniors were finding this moment in time very, very hard. And an idea just began to strike me. And as I looked with frustration at the daily briefings, like that plinth on the left, pseudo strategy, and that plinth on the right, like pseudo science, and that gap in the middle, that gap in the middle where creativity and humanity should have stood, you know, calling for us to rise to this moment of fragility with some degree of creativity that kind of would would would, would match it. And I, I thought of these young people, and I thought of the most innovative young folks I've ever worked with was when I did a lot of work in prisons around entrepreneurship. And so I called up this guy, Carl Catamol. He wrote the book, uh, A Survival Guide on Prison. And I just asked him for his advice on, on lockdown. And it was, it was best advice I'd had in weeks. And then I spoke to two or three other guys who I'd worked with in that similar situation. And I wrote it up as a Medium article, not very long, and I posted it. It's good advice for others. And within it, I used the term uncertainty experts. And I was just referencing the fact that, you know, we have 1.8 million single parents in this country, 12 million people living in poverty, 480,000 refugees, staggeringly, 180,000 young people in gangs, you know, people whose daily life is uncertainty. And in this moment of uncertainty, we were looking to people who had no experience of it. The cabinet office at the time was celebrated for its diversity in terms of gender and ethnicity, which is to be celebrated. But there were only three career paths that made up the cabinet at the time of the beginning of the pandemic, law, finance, and media. And it just struck me that, you know, we're, we're, we're misunderstanding and overlooking people who know how to get to the end of this week. You know, they know how to make ends meet. And crucially, they know how to spot the opportunity in the uncertainty. So I sat down, one of these guys who was once heralded on the front of the standard as London's number one gang leader. Um, he's now, you know, celebrated community leader and business leader. He's just started a, an investment fund, multi-million pound investment fund for young black entrepreneurs. He's regularly seen with the Bransons, the Markles. He's an incredible guy. So how did he go from business, gang leader to business leader? And and what I began to see was this, the skills of uncertainty. And I mean it by saying skills, the, the survival strategies, the, the coping mechanisms, the sixth sense that's born in uncertainty is very applicable in a boardroom, in a meeting, in a creative environment when shit hits the fan. And so I started on a, on a, on a journey of exploration of looking for the unusual suspects. And I found refugees who'd become CEOs. I found ex hostages who'd become healers. I found prisoners of war who'd become leadership specialists. I found people who'd been near suicide, gone through gender transition and now world changing scientists, prisoners who'd become law reform. I mean, I found an incredible cast and there was something so consistent in all of their stories. They all had very similar strategies for turning uncertainty into very, very significant opportunity. 
So first of all, you've shot the documentary already. Is that right? Its first iterations was it's kind of an online workshop, and I used different camera crews, different documentary camera crews around the world. Because some of the guys, uh, you know, Hilda is in Kampala in Uganda, Resgardi is in Iraq, um, Dr. Ming is in California, and so I used local teams via Upwork to get good quality 4K shots done. And then they came back to me and I started to hold them together and, and try to work out what the interactive environment was going to be. You know, what was this moment that Zoom was teaching us that sitting on the sofa wasn't giving us, yet this thirst for documentaries was off the chart. And so what I came up with, and this is what forms the show, three one-hour sessions, is in each session, uh, we focus on a different topic. And the topics came from the research I did. What are the main negative impacts of uncertainty on you as human beings? And I had hundreds of responses from thousands of um, people surveyed. And they could all be categorized into three areas, fear, fog, and stasis. Those are the three main negative impacts of uncertainty in our lives. So the three episodes use those as their foundation. And each one explores three different stories of uncertainty experts and explains exactly how they turn fear into a driving force for action, how fog can be permission for creativity and the way out of stasis as well. And so you meet these guys, you have the clips of their stories. I'm I'm presenting their backstory. You then see some good VT of them. And then this moment happens, which is kind of the surprise reveal, where their question, the question they pose, they finish their, their VT on, and it comes to your mobile phone. So you're watching along. You've been encouraged to 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 hold your phone up to the QR code that's appearing within the documentary. And the question arrives on your phone and you're now answering a question that's been sent to you by someone who just survived a 20 year prison sentence and is now changing laws and saving lives. And they put you on the spot and they're asking you to reflect on your approach to uncertainty too. And then over the course of the one hour app, those uh, interactions, those points of reflection build up, build up a psychological profile of you and, and begin to take you on a journey similar to the the, the process of self-awareness uh, that CBT or ACT or those you know very successful talking therapies use. And when you start to contrast that with the qualitative uh, analysis that the guys at UCL that I referenced did, you begin to have a very comprehensive understanding of people's experience of uncertainty and you begin to have a very useful set of tools to help them turn, and, and as we were able to prove, a attitudinal shift in their response to uncertainty long-term. So who's this for then? Because this is live. So you've already shot the documentary, so it's immersive and interactive. So you have an audience that comes to a physical space in London? No, no, we're we're broadcasting it online. We're using um, one of the big streaming platforms. We're using the same streaming platform that National Theatre, when they launched National Theatre at home, it's it's really good, high-quality streaming service it's you know some of the big streamers actually use these guys as some of their white label stuff so the the sound vision quality is nothing like you know whilst i began testing it on zoom the quality you get is that which you'd sit down watching anything on your tv and um the next iteration you'll be able to find this on amazon prime apple tv roku etc but for now it's just going to be available online i've built a little studio at home and i've had a lot of great support and, and guidance along the way I was very lucky that for the pilot episode, the last three, t- the pilot episode sold out before we went on air and the last three tickets were bought by three Netflix execs and they've pre-bought uh, tickets to the November series and they did so at such a scale that it's enabled me to have a bit of, you know, 
a bit of lifeline to invest in this next series. And it's been a, you know great to know those are going to be some of the key first audience members because that really puts me under pressure, right? Um, but it also means that they've been incredibly supportive and hugely creative in, in, in terms of their advice and guidance on, on helping me develop both scripts and, and the material. So no, I broadcast it from uh, home. There are two presenters, me and the lead scientist on the show, Catherine Templar-Lewis. And she's she has a film and movie um, background as well. So we've created the scripts between us. I tell the stories of the uncertainty experts and we introduce the VT. We've, we've built it in two different softwares using OBS and a, and a mixing device. So we live mix in the stories um, of the uncertainty experts as I'm narrating them. And then we allow the uncertainty experts to, to reveal some of their own um, experiences and the insights. Those insights then ping out to the audience on their mobile phones. Um, we get live data and information as people are having this experience. And then towards the end of the episode, it's all framed, ra- turned around and, and sent back to the audience. And they have this kind of aha moment of realization and revelation that builds over the week in between each episode's Catherine is an incredible science communicator. So you get the, uh, as podcast episodes, the full interviews with the uncertainty experts, some science explanation content. And what we found was that 85% of the audience engaged with three or more bits of this content throughout the week. So this is real like reflection. This is real chance to get involved. And there was a real frustration. People like, why is it live? Why does it have to be live? I want to be, and we insisted on it being live. So if you miss it, you missed it. If you're late, you're not getting in. It is a live event and you have to be there on time to, to do it, to get involved. There's three screening times each day. So there is some, there is a degree of flex, but there's a reason behind that. And then you get to the end of the three episodes, you, you get the collated all the additional content, and then you do this, um, the second stage of scientific evaluations. And then 48 hours later, you get a personalized profile, a full report of your insights, observations, and your shift in terms of these kind of key metrics around tolerance to uncertainty. And then we take the measure again, six weeks on. And from the pilot, what we saw was that there was a, a sh- even a f- even further increase in these, in these drivers of creativity and resilience and a decrease in the drivers of anxiety. And the pilot audience, to ask your first question, was 25 to 50, very even split, female to male, um, very international, US, UK, Europe, and Australia, um, mainly professional ABC1 group. We got a, the best um, net promoter score I've ever seen in my life, 9.5. Uh, and you know, a very interesting selection of people that range from firms, as I've already ne- mentioned, from Netflix through to Salesforce, as well as a whole ton of entrepreneurs, slightly skewed um, female. And yeah, they've, they've, that, that group has stayed very, very loyal, very, very active, you know, really ex- enjoyed being part of something so early and experimental. And many of them have signed back up to the, f- the first series. Um, and as a result, we've, we've sold very well to uh, individuals through recommendation predominantly. And um, we're beginning to sell very well to companies, group buying tickets. So um, TikTok, Nike, Google, Lego um, are just some of the very interesting brands who are seeing this as an interesting way to take their teams on a journey as well. So we've got kind of we've got a business audience, really, as well as a, an ordinary consumer audience, which is, is kind of a fascinating breakthrough and an unusual innovation for, for anyone in this space. Well, what I find really interesting about this is that it's part documentary, part self-improvement course part training is really interesting new i well i think it's new maybe there are other uh, uh similar events if you like going on but i was struck by how interesting 
this sort of hybrid of documentary workshop and science is coming together. And, uh, you know, it's a real pointer to the future in terms of interactive entertainment, I guess. We invited one journalist along to the pilot. We didn't, we didn't want to be too open. We didn't really know how it was going to go. And he's the deputy editor of Time Out. And I was really interested in his, I, I know him. And so I knew I could trust him. And he's, he's written a really nice piece around it. And in fact, we've done a, we've done a big media partnership with them for the last 15 years of his life. He's been going to every event, every documentary festival, every film festival, and he'd never seen anything like it. And he'd never seen anything quite that so many people saw as so interesting because you get to about halfway through the series and you realize that the series is about the most interesting thing in your life, which is you. And that you do feel a shift. Everybody recorded a shift after the first episode. People started talking about the things they were doing differently. Then you had a currency, a new kind of set of vernacular because, yeah, you've got a story because you've been given some advice by a guy who used to run gangs and now runs businesses. But then you've seen this incredible scientist who's explained the science behind that set of decisions. And then gradually you realize how you have the capacity to do similar things yourself. So it's very, very empowering. So you're absolutely right. It's a hybrid of both well-being. I think Dave says he's got this really great quote that it's kind of part documentary, part well-being exercise, part group therapy. (laughs) I think that's a really good kind of summary of the level of hybrids that it is. But again, that's the the thing. I was looking for who's done interactive documentary so I could look for some examples. And across all the film festivals, there's some amazing stuff. But predominantly we've defaulted to interactive documentary, meaning largely user-generated content within a documentary. At this moment, with the acceleration of technology, what the expectation of our audience is to, to interact and be involved in something, you know, if we can do that in, in these work environments, yeah, this is, this is the chance, right? This is the chance in this moment of great fragility to really, really try and do some things differently. So yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have had the innovation or the lessons that have come into it had it not been for the shit show of last year and and here we are at the precipice of really uh, innovating within a within an already pretty innovative genre yeah can you see this live streaming on one of the key platforms you know whether it's uh, whether it's amazon prime for example or any of the other svod or avod platforms is, is that your ambition for the show in stages first things first i want to run it again as a live event in november and my plan is then to run a series of these as live events next year. I've already had it likened to the beginning of Punch Drunk or Secret Cinema. And and I think one of the successes of those that I, that I look up to a great deal, and I wouldn't say I was anywhere near those levels yet, is the idea that you have a series and, and a moment. And so for 2022, at a moment when humanity really needs to change its relationship with uncertainty, and it's proven, right? Uncertainty is the greatest driver of anxiety globally, bar none. Yet it is also this huge unlock. And, and if there was a moment that we needed more creativity and more resilience this is it so i'm really interested in running it as a series of increasing um live events to fundamentally prove the science ucl are are aboard the scientists on the team are aboard so we're going to run as a series of, of live experiments with ever increasing audiences next year what i've loved about working in the science community i never have before is its openness Every single piece of research and, and, and academic study typically is then given back to the community for it to, to get larger. So if we've, as one scientist said, Sam, you've stumbled upon a new form of CBT that can be delivered via documentary. The scope for this is incredible. At a societal level, societies with a low tolerance to uncertainty are more prone to divisive politics, populist policies and agendas, conspiracy theories, high tolerance to uncertainty, look after themselves better. 
when 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 there's not food on the shelves when you know the, the groups that will pull themselves together in the uncertainty that's to come we need societies with high tolerance of uncertainty and the same goes for businesses businesses that are risk averse are not surviving so we need this kind of work so i'd like to prove it beyond doubt i'd like to extend this experiment to have more companies businesses and organizations go through it as well as individuals so we know it works and then look at how we share that and one of the ways that i'd be very excited i mean i am both very nervous and very proud and you know, very ambitious about having so many Netflix execs come along to the uh, November screening. Because, yeah, I mean, what could be what could be a bigger ambition than, than making something like this work and then having it on a platform like that in, in some kind of iteration? You know, who knows what that might look like yet. But if we can deliver some of the effects of CBT on, on the underlying meta challenge of the 21st century to that many people, then that gets very exciting. And for someone whose whole life has been around kind of purpose and, and empowerment, you know, the coming together of both real freaker and science, you know, the best storytelling I've ever done in my life with some of the most inspirational, I- interesting individuals I've ever come across on, you know, on a platform like that. Well, yeah, that would be, those are my, those are my dreams. All right. And so if anybody wants to sign up and uh, experience the uncertainty experts, how do they do that? You simply Google uncertainty experts or go straight to the website uncertaintyexperts.com and uh, take a look. You'll see some of the videos, the trailers, some of the testimonials there. And if you like what you see, press buy a ticket and you'll be able to buy a ticket. And then you choose your screening time. If, if you're UK people, that's 9am, 5pm and 8.30. So that means we've got a screening that works from Shanghai to Sydney to LA to New York to, to, to Mumbai. And pick the time that suits you and be there. Tuesday the 9th of November it begins, then the 16th of November, then 23rd November. And know that 48 hours before the first screening, you'll be receiving your full scientific assessment. Uh, and then 48 hours after the last screening, you'll receive your full profile and breakdown of your own tolerance to uncertainty and how you can continue to improve it. Thank you so much for coming on Telecast. As a product of social media, I just literally saw this last night. I thought it was really interesting, and I'm really glad you could come on the show. Can I invite you along, Justin? You know, you've clearly spotted what it is that's interesting about this. I'd like, I mean, like, why don't you come along to the show, and then we could come back and reflect on it on the other side. Sounds good. Yeah, I'll be there. Fantastic. Sam Conniff, thanks very much for coming on Telecast. Justin, thank you. Well, that's about it for this week's Telecast. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues. And why not follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter? Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. Until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.